0: Glad you are able to be here. Um, I know the Sprouls are away, and they were here this morning, but they had something they had to do this afternoon. There may be others as well. Um, Wes and I were kind of talking about that. We've had pretty good attendance even with the weather this, this, uh, this year thus far. But uh, take a look around here. Notice if there's somebody that uh, normally sits by you or whatever that's maybe been out for a couple of weeks and they're unaccounted for, Uh, We haven't made an announcement. Let's check on them and uh, mention them to Wes or to me or to somebody, and let's make sure we check on them. We wouldn't want somebody to be sick out there and we're not aware of it. So just kind of take notice of those that are around you. Tonight, we're going to look at a lesson that will, in some respects, serve... You may remember last year. Let me back up and say it like this. You may remember last year that that I was talking about Jeremiah, the prophet, the message, etc., And I said that I was thinking about during this year as we looked at the whole idea of holiness, of going back and looking at not everything in the book by any stretch of the imagination, but selected topics out of the book, uh, lessons about various things, and all of that relating to our personal holiness. And tonight's lesson, even though I won't say very much, I'll just mention Jeremiah and, and pretty much leave it at that, um, is going to serve as, as an introduction, lay a groundwork, so to speak, for when I go back to the book, and that will probably be as, in as little as two weeks or so, maybe as much as a month. I haven't decided what Sunday I want to preach this next month, but uh, nonetheless, this will lay a foundation for it. Now, if you know what the lesson is about tonight, you picked up an outline, you saw it in the bulletin when I announced the topics, you know that tonight is spiritual adultery. Um, Someone asked me when they saw the title in there if that was the counterpart to Wes's lesson on holy matrimony, if you remember that. And I said, uh, wasn't sure because at the time I hadn't heard Wes's lesson, but having heard it, the answer is yeah. It's sort of the antithesis of what Wes was talking about with holy matrimony. But when we talk about adultery, perhaps there's No sadder news, and I'll put it that way, because generally that's the way it comes. Somebody says, have you heard about so-and-so? Or perhaps you're a child and you get called into a room and mom and dad explain to you that they're not going to be together anymore. They're breaking up. I doubt there's any sadder news that really comes to us, especially those of us that are older and understand, than of adultery and maybe the subsequent breakup of a marriage and a home. And yet, equally sad is the idea of spiritual adultery. We're going to talk about, well, the Bible does address it. We're going to talk about what that term is, and what it means, and what it refers to, etc. But I think it's equally sad to the idea of adultery as we commonly think of the term. But spiritual adultery that's committed by the Lord's people, and committed against Him, And even the subsequent, many times, of the breakup that occurs not totally of his home, so that there is no more home of God, for it will continue. But a breakup within his home is the idea. And so we'll talk more about that idea. We'll talk more about the whole idea of spiritual adultery. And you may have noticed the thought question for the evening in that, this analogy we're going to talk about, you might ask yourself, okay, if that, what you're talking about is spiritual adultery, then what, am I, what might I refer to as spiritual divorce or even spiritual remarriage? And we're going to get into really looking at that. Maybe not a whole lot tonight, but we are going to get into looking at that. But as I said, this lesson is going to serve as a foundation to some of those studies in Jeremiah. So spiritual adultery, what is it? If you picked up an outline, you might have seen that I've got two main topics on the outline, and and I'll tell you right now that some of my professors would look at this outline and say, "You've committed every sin against homiletics there is." So I'll tell you that right now. However, it is exactly what I wanted to say. In other words, if you looked at the outline, I asked the question of what is spiritual adultery, and then the second I come right behind it, saying a description of spiritual adultery. Now. That may sound very redundant. I hope it won't be as redundant as it sounds. But what is spiritual adultery? Spiritual adultery occurs when God's people leave. And this could be, we may see this in the Old Testament or the New. When God's people leave the intimate covenant relationship that they have with Him for another. In other words, just like an adultery, and when we commonly think of adultery as we think of it, physical if you want to say it like that, but when we think of adultery, it is when your spouse leaves the intimate, even covenant relationship that they have with you, they leave that, or at least they violate that, and they go to someone else. Now, we understand that. We understand what adultery is. Well, spiritual adultery is doing that, And doing that in violation of the relationship we have with God. Go with me, if you will, to Malachi chapter 2. You may remember not too long ago we were talking about marriage and we were talking about divorce and all of that kind of thing from 1 Corinthians 7. And I said, I begin, as I guess I begin every single sermon I ever do about divorce and remarriage. I always start with Malachi 2 because there is no more basic statement than God saying down in verse 16, I hate divorce. And yet, if you look at Malachi 2, it goes much deeper than just God saying to his people, when you get married, stay together, don't divorce because I hate it. You may notice that in this chapter, God is actually comparing your marriage, that is, with a woman or a man on this earth, to the marriage relationship, the intimate covenant relationship that exists between him him, And his people. I'm not going to read all of Malachi 2. And really not all. The whole book refers to this covenant with God. You may want to go home. It's a short book. Go home and read it and meditate upon it. But if you will look with me. Down in, for example, verse 7 of Malachi 2. You will notice that in particular, God is condemning the priest for having violated, notice back in verse 5, my covenant with him. So the priests in particular are in violation of this covenant with God. And that he says a number of things in this. Verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously or traitorously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now that's not just talking about marriage between man and woman. That is talking about the covenant that exists Between all of God's people as they relate to one another and then certainly as they relate to God. And you'll notice in this chapter that he has a lot to say about marriage, about departing out of that covenant, leaving, violating, abandoning that covenant, etc. Read with me a couple more verses. Verse 11, Judah as a nation of people has dealt treacherously or traitorously. And uh, an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and has married, notice that, the daughter of a strange God. You will find a number of verses like that sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. Notably, we might cite chapters like Ezekiel 16. Or we might look at Jeremiah and chapter 3. I'd get you to go home and read those. You may want to jot those chapters down and go home and read them and you can really see this analogy from God of you're not only my people, you're not only my children, but I've married you. You are my spouse. You are my bride, spiritually speaking. And what you have done is just like he says here in Malachi 2 and verse 11, you have betrayed that marriage. You've betrayed that covenant, and you've even gone so far. If we're looking at the analogy of divorce and remar- adultery, divorce and remarriage, you've not only committed the adultery, but you've divorced me and gone and married another god. Is what it amounts to, and that is spiritual adultery. And, I, and while I think that's simple to see that, I mean, we look at that analogy and we say, sure, there should be an intimacy with God, a closeness to God. And there is this covenant relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship in which two individuals vow to one another. Uh, we most recently saw that with TJ and Amelia, and there have been other marriages, and will be other marriages upcoming uh, in the near future. You know? um, but two people take vows to one another. And I will do this, and I will do that. I promise to do this. I vow, I you know, I plight my troth, as Wes quoted in that, uh, uh, in that holy matrimony service, or I pledge my trust, etc., etc. Well, we do that with God. And what we are saying when we obey the gospel, you know, someone comes down to the front and says, I want to be baptized, I want to become a Christian. And they confess their belief in Jesus. And they acknowledge their intention to repent or change their life. And they're baptized In in the water back here. And they're baptized to be baptized into Christ. And have their sins washed away. But whether it is said at that time or not. They understand that they are making a commitment. They are entering into a covenant with God. They may not know all the terminology. And they don't have to. But they know that this is not a one time thing. It's not a one time act. It's not just you know, an act of fornication, as it were, that's a one-time thing, it's over, it's done, and you go your separate ways. That this is a lifetime commitment to God. And so God describes this as a marriage. And God also expresses that He has deep feelings about the one to whom He's married. And He expects those deep feelings, that intimacy, to come from us as we join Him in that covenant relationship. So we might say it like this. If we come to the New Testament, and let's talk about it for a second. The New Testament, technically speaking, we often sing songs and talk about the church is the bride of Christ. It is. But I would not say yet, other than in absolute anticipation of what is going to happen That you and I as the church are the wife of Christ. That is not technically what the New Testament says. Stay with me for a moment. Let's look at a couple of passages. If you're in the Old Testament, you're in Malachi, I want you to turn back. You know what? I'm going to wait, actually. I know it's on your outline, but I'm going to wait. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 11. I'll come back to that passage in the Old Testament. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, this is where Paul, Wes was talking about the Corinthians this morning, as a matter of fact, quite a bit. But this is where Paul was saying, you know, I did come into your city, and I did teach a number of you, and I did baptize a number of you, and you became the church at Corinth. But notice what Paul says of it. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, and down in verse 2. Paul says, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, For I have, and notice the word, King James, I have espoused you. Some translations say betrothed you. And he says, I have espoused or betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste or pure virgin to Christ. Literally what we are as the church is that we are the betrothed of Jesus Christ. If you look up a technical dictionary, and I went to Mary and Westers and just copied this down quickly. Betrothal. What is a betrothal? Well, it is an agreement, i.e. covenant. It is an agreement between two people to be married in the future. One of the easiest things in the New Testament to see is Joseph and Mary. Mary was Joseph's espoused or betrothed wife, but he had not yet married And Scripture makes that clear. He had not yet married her. He had not had relations with her. Yet she was with child, obviously, with Jesus by miracle. And so that created that whole controversy. We are the betrothed wife of Jesus Christ. It is a guaranteed thing. It is going to happen unless you and I violate the agreement, the covenant, because Jesus won't. So it is something that is going to take place. When we look at Ephesians 5, you can describe the relationship between us and Jesus as one of marriage. Why? Because it's a done deal. Just like your salvation, just like your inheritance, just like you know, your time in heaven, you are already citizens in heaven. You're not there yet. You haven't moved there, as it were. But in God's mind, it's a done deal. And so it is with marriage. But if we notice in Revelation, I'd like for you to turn over there with me, to Revelation 19, and we'll look at a couple of verses here. In Revelation 19, we are still anticipating this. In Revelation 19, and old down, it really begins about verse 6, but I'm going to drop down, um, I'm going to start in verse, uh, where do I want to start? 5. Let's start in verse 5. A voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, and you, you that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were. The voice of a great multitude is the voice of many waters, is the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. Now notice verse 7. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife, notice, and that would be his betrothed, has made herself ready. Now he's going to go on to tell us how she's done that. Verse 8. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Incidentally, the whole idea of the bride wearing white and all of that, has to do with that chastity, it has to do with that purity, it has to do with that wife preparing herself to join her husband and all of that. Well, that's what you and I do as Christians as we live this life. Now read one other final passage with me, Matthew 22. Jesus gives a parable here about the church. and You can easily see he's talking about that if you read chapters 21, really all the way through 25. But we're going to look at Matthew 22 and verse 1. Jesus answered and spoke unto them, that would be the Jews, by parables, and he said, The kingdom of heaven, and we know that to be the church. The kingdom of heaven or the church is likened to a certain king. And this king would be God the Father who made a marriage, notice, for his son. And then he sent his servants out. I'm going to paraphrase this. But he sends his servants out to invite everybody to come to the wedding. But you notice that in this parable, and a parable is, you know, for certain points to be taught. In the parable, one comes in, but he's not properly dressed. Think about back there in chapter 19 of Revelation, the fine linen they're dressed in, the righteousness of the saints. Her wife has made herself ready. Well, one comes into this wedding and he doesn't have on a wedding garment. And so God asked him, if you'll notice down in verse 12, Friend, how camest thou in hither and ha- not having a wedding garment? In other words, why are you not dressed? It would be like, you know, if you're, if you're having a wedding and you're, you let everybody know, hey, you know, this is a dress-up formal affair... Uh, you know, it, not that you've got to go out and buy a $5,000 suit, but the point is you look your best. You come in dressed well. And let's say that somebody just drags in there and they've been working out, you know, on a farm and working in manure and everything else, and he's kind of dragging there. No respect, no concern, no, you know, this is a special occasion or anything else. How would you feel? And God says, How is it that you think you can walk into the marriage of my son And not be properly dressed. And of course you notice the reaction in verse 13 is take him out. They drag him out and you see the description is they put him into hell. We are talking about something that takes place on judgment day. And we are talking about the idea of a a bride, a wife who has given attention to making herself ready. You'll notice how this parable ends in verse 14 and what Jesus' point is. Many are called, but few are chosen. And we, of course, are looking at the idea not only of being called to the wedding, you know, it's ready, come to the feast. But we want to be one of those who on judgment day are chosen by God because we are what we are supposed to be. You may notice throughout this section there are several parables that address that. It's like chapter 25 and the ten virgins. Five of the virgins who were called don't make it because they're not prepared, they're not ready. Okay, well, what does all of that have to do with spiritual adultery? Really a lot, in in truth. Go back with me, if you will, to um, the book of Isaiah, and, and I want us to look at this, and we'll start talking about the idea of people who make the commitment, and they may make the commitment in several stages, you know, like the way we do things, and let's just talk about the way we do things here, the traditional way we do things. Will you marry me? Yes, I will. There is the planning. We are going to get we set the date. We are going to get married on such and such a date. Now, we are already in a relationship. We're not married, but we're in a relationship and we are getting ready for that marriage. And we expect fidelity. We expect that there will be two people there in that situation who will honor their commitment to be married. And then the day comes, and maybe a preacher or someone stands and says, in some fashion, and the laws are very lax on this, but you have to agree to be married. Do you? Will you? And the people answer, yes. And maybe there's all those things like Wes went through and all the traditional vows that are taken, rich and, you know, richer or poor, sickness, health, all those different things, Vows that are taken in a wedding ceremony, but we're agreeing to that. And really, what we're doing is finalizing the the agreement. We're finally saying we are from this point on going to do all those things we've been saying to one another. When we do this, is way the way it will be. When I marry you, you will be the only one. When I marry you, I'll be with you no matter what. When I marry you, you know whether things are greater than not so good. I mean, we're committing to that. And finally, there comes a point in time where we say, yes, from this point on, I'm in that position. Well, while all of that is true, we also know that there are people who cheat. And there are people who break their vows. There are people who break their commitment before they even marry and cheat. There are people who break them the day of their marriage. I actually know of a case where that happened. It is incredible when that happens. The hurt that's involved. There are people, plenty of people, who do after they take their vows. Well, if we're comparing that spiritually then, what about the case of the proposed bride of Christ? If you're a member of the church, you sit here tonight, you are part of those espoused to Jesus Christ. Now ask a question, a probing question of me and of all of us here. Do I cheat? On Jesus Christ. Do I break my commitment to Jesus? I really have taken vows. I have said, confessed, stated publicly in many different ways. This is who I am and this is what I'm going to be. Do I keep that in trust? Or plight my troth? The old language. Or do I look at it as something that Do whatever you want. Do whatever you feel. Or even if you do it, you know what? It doesn't carry the stigma it once did. So we start looking at this whole idea of marriage. And we see then why God would say, I am to be your, you know, Revelation 2. We look at the church at Ephesus. What I have against you is not the things you're doing. Let me give you a a, a parallel to Revelation 2 as Jesus addressed the church at Ephesus. Suppose, you're married to someone, husband or wife, you guys, but you're married to someone and all the things they do day in, day out in marriage are fine. You know, you you know when you get married you kinda of separate into your duties, well she does that and I do this and you know sometimes it's She stays at home and I go to work. Or sometimes it's, you know, I do this out in the yard and she does this in the kitchen. And sometimes it's exactly the other way around. You know, you say to the wife, hey, I'll cook breakfast if you'll do this little task that needs to be done. It doesn't matter. But you kind of fall into a routine doing all of that. Now suppose that two people are married and they go through their week and all those things they agree to do, they do. You know, just, I mean, if you want to keep the house running smoothly and all that, it's got to be done so they do it. But you notice as time goes on that that person doesn't feel toward you the way they did. They just don't love you like they once did. That affection, that, you know, you look into their eyes and there's that special look. All that's just gone. And you know it. When you look at Revelation 2, that's what Jesus is saying. I don't have a problem with what you do. What you do, day in, day out, is exemplary. But you don't love me anymore. And I've got a great problem with that. So we understand marriage. And we understand it involves a number of things. Vows and commitments and just mundane daily tasks. But it involves that love. That total, and I'll use it, unadulterated love that where that person is the only one to you. And you know exactly what I mean by that. Now, let's describe spiritual adultery. Go back with me to Isaiah. And this is a passage I was going to grab earlier, but I thought it fit better at this point in the lesson. If you'll notice in Isaiah, Isaiah talks, the bulk of it, the majority of it, talks about Jesus and the church. But there is a section here in particular that we know very well that talks about Jesus. Now, I'm not going to read all of this. It starts in chapter 52. And down in verse 13, and obviously you can see that this is Jesus, and you know it's Jesus because it is so often quoted in the New Testament, and Jesus is the one, you know, by his stripes we are healed and all of that. That's this passage. But when you get to the end of chapter 53, basically what you have is the servant of God who innocently has been killed for all of this that he didn't do. Now, we understand Jesus died for our sins, not his own. But then you see the resurrection of Jesus because God doesn't just end it there. He then goes on to talk about the rewards, the benefits. In other words, what the servant gets out of going through all that. And the truth is, Jesus didn't just die. Jesus was resurrected and Jesus was given all authority by God the Father, and He is now King and High Priest, and the church is His, and on and on and on and on and on it goes. Well, if you look at chapter 54, He's still describing those benefits to the servant, now the resurrected servant. And I just want to read a small little portion of this. Go down with me, if you will, to verse 5. As He anticipates the church as he anticipates this inheritance, if you will, of the Gentiles. In fact, I'm going to start in verse 3. Of the Gentiles even. For you shall break forth on the right hand and the left, and your seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shall not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. Notice verse 5, for thy maker is thine husband. Now we're talking about a time when Jesus, in particular, is the husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, will He be called. You see, Jehovah, God the Father, was the God of the Jews. And the world referred to Him as the God of the Jews. Jesus Christ is the God of the whole earth. Lord of lords, king of kings, etc. Your maker is your husband. Notice verse 6. The Lord has called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. Now you might think of yourself spiritually. Does this ever describe me? Was I ever grieved over my sins? Was I ever forsaken and felt like I was all alone and been abandoned by everyone else because of what I had done? Well, here's the description of God having called me. I want you. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what you're guilty of from before. I want you. I tell you, when you find people who have made a lot of terrible mistakes and someone really good comes along and says, I love you and I want you, it can be an amazing relationship they share. That's the relationship we share with Jesus. You'll notice he goes on here. When you were refused, I called you. For a small moment, he says, I forsook you. But with great mercies will I gather you. I don't have a long time to preach about that. But I want you to understand, we are talking about being separated from him because of our sins. Only to be joined to him again because of our repentance. Because of our holiness, to be joined to Him forever. When we describe spiritual adultery, what are we talking about? We are talking about betraying that. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the idea of someone who loved us despite what we've done. Who called us regardless of where we have been. We're talking about someone who accepts us even though everyone around us would reject and refuse us. We're talking about someone who cheers our heart, though we're grieved and cut to the very core because of what we've done, what we've committed. We're talking about someone who looks into our eyes and looks into our souls and says, I believe in you, I love you, and I want you, and then we violate that. That is spiritual adultery. Now, James uses that term i want you to go with me to the book of james and we'll spend a little bit of time here and a few minutes and then we're going to close but this is a passage that i'm going to come back to and i'm not going to look at every verse of it tonight or anything i'm going to come back to it both on sunday mornings and sunday nights and there'll be points within it that i want to grab and i want to really stress but tonight let's just look at how james describes spiritual adultery now you might look at this passage you might say well you know I know he uses the term adulterers and adulteresses in verse 4, but honestly, I've got to tell you, the description doesn't seem one of marriage and adultery. I'll tell you this, that this is a very, very, very difficult passage for expositors to go to, and especially verse 5. It's translations, etc., all over the place. But let me approach it from this standpoint, because if this is not everything it's saying, it probably isn't, but I think certainly this is part of what it's saying. You know, marriage partners prove their fidelity. They prove it. They don't just say, I love you. You can trust me. I'm going to be there with you the rest of my life. All that kind of thing. But they prove it. And they prove it by their daily commitment. I mean, richer, poorer, sickness, health, thick, thin, however you want to describe it, that person is there. And time goes on and you just kind of grow closer together. Either you grow apart, or you grow closer together, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is the person you count on. And you do. And your lives become so entwined, intertwined with one another, they can virtually not be separated. They are only by death itself. So the question would be not as that happening, I hope it is happening, or has happened, some of you that are older, with somebody on earth. But has that happened with Jesus? When we start talking about relationship with God, and, you know, cl- getting closer to God, and getting closer to God in my weakness and in my strength and worshiping God, all of this that we're talking and going to be talking about, the question has to be, am I showing, proving my fidelity to Jesus Christ by my day-in, day-out activity? And I might ask a number of questions that I think evidence the answer to that. What about the time I spend with Jesus versus the time I spend, notice, away from Him? And when I say away, I don't just mean that, you know, like in a marriage, you go to work. I, I dare say there are plenty of married people here tonight they may work in two separate places, or be separated by distance, etc., time, etc., and they are not separate. That person is as much in their heart as if they were sitting right beside them. Now, I'm talking about really being away from Jesus Christ. He's out of my, out of sight, out of mind, out of heart. What about the world? Notice in this passage, friendship of the world. James talks about. Is the world my mistress? Are the thing you know, love not the world, neither the thing. Are the things in the world my mistress? Do I court my mistress? You know what happens in adultery? Two people are married, and then there's this person on the side. The mistress, or whatever the person might be. And there's time devoted, and money devoted, and means devoted, and talents. And all of that is given to somebody that should be given to the spouse. We all understand that. Is there a mistress out there in the world that is court that I court that draws me away from Jesus and draws my time, my talent, my heart to that thing? That's the evidence that's showing me if I'm committing spiritual adultery. Or I might say the level of comfort. You know, when two people are married and it's right... It doesn't matter what they're doing. I mean, they can be digging in the dirt, sitting on, in watching TV, sitting and eating a meal. It just does not matter what they're doing. They're totally at home and comfortable with one another. Well, am I comfortable with Jesus? Or am I more comfortable with the world? That would be the question. You know, James, when he goes through this, and we look at these verses in James 4, where do wars and fights and quarrels and all of those kind of things, where do they come from? Don't They come from your lust. That is the things that are bottled up inside you. Isn't that where they're coming from? Notice the progression here. You lust, you desire, you want, but you don't have. And the truth is what you do is you kill even but you still don't have what is he saying I want you to think about not just literal fighting here and quarreling with other people but I want you to think about the things in life you want the most and I dare say there are plenty of people out there really plenty of people out there who look at maybe a marriage of two people that have been together a long time and they're so comfortable and they love each other so much and these two old people look at each other and you can just tell, man, they're more in love than when they were 18. And you say to yourself, I want that. Yeah, you want it. But do you want it bad enough to give what it takes to have it? Or are you really trying to bypass all the work that goes into having that, even to the point of grabbing and killing? You can kill in a lot of different ways. You can kill spiritually, etc., etc. But here would be my point. What happens when we have things in life that could grow into, could become what we really deep down inside want. But we trade all of that to grab and eat up and kill so we can have it for the moment. James says, that's what you do. And you still don't have So even when you ask, God, please, give me a marriage. Give me a home. Give me a family. Give me a whatever. Please give me that. You ask, but you don't ask to then give yourself to it. Think about what marriage is supposed to be. Look at Ephesians 5. Jesus has the church. It belongs to Him. But in order to have it, He had to give Himself for it. Here is the idea of me giving to whatever God gives me. God gives me a good job. Do you give yourself to it? God gives me a good wife. Do you give yourself to her? Or can pleasure enter into that Breathe for-the-moment pleasure, and just take away from all of that that I should be investing myself in. Notice, when you ask, you ask, you don't receive it because you ask with the wrong motives or you ask amiss. What does He mean by that? You ask it so you can use it up because you just want the pleasure of it. You don't want the gift God really wants to give you. God, please, please, Give me a wife. Okay, Michael, I will give you a wife, but you've got to give yourself to her so that it becomes a holy marriage in every respect I meant it to be. You adulterers and adulteresses, James says. Don't you know that the friendship of the world, he uses a word here, literally love, the love of the world, the affinity for it, and the things within it, that's at enmity hostility. It's hostile toward God. Whosoever would be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Don't you know that? Don't you realize that when you like or love or emulate or follow or want to be like the world and everything they have, you're going to get exactly what you love. Case in point. Someone is married. And they begin to join together with, you know, say a wife or a husband. It doesn't matter. They begin to join together with other guys or other women. And they begin to talk about their spouses. They run their spouses down. They talk about, you know, women and all the bad faults of women. Or if it's the women, they talk about all the bad faults of men. They talk about how you can't trust them. They talk about how they can't do this and they can't do that. They talk about when you've been together long enough, you no longer enjoy this or that. And you can talk yourself into a disaster. And that's what people do. And you do that enough, and you'll be just like the world. But if you're going to the Bible and you're saying, God, what do you want my marriage to be? I don't. It doesn't matter what everybody down the street is doing. I want this kind of marriage. I want that special marriage. I want that holy marriage. And I want to be holy in it. God said, you're going to have that you work hard enough, that's exactly what you're going to have. And you know, the point is, your Christianity, your marriage to God, to Jesus Christ, is exactly the same. If you are walking and talking and living and breathing like most members of the church, you are going to be like most members of the church who have been called but will not be chosen. But if you're putting everything you've got into it, and you're building that relationship with Jesus, and someday you're going to marry Him and go home to live with Him forever. Are you here tonight and not a child of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you want tonight to confess your belief and vow to be faithful to Him, to live for Him, to be with Him? Will you be baptized? To have your sins washed away? To begin your life in Jesus Christ? Are you here tonight and you've done all of that and you look at yourself and you...